Somewhere where you're sitting is a Bible. Would you open it up with me to page 849? And that's where you can find Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14. If you were here with us last week, we began a new look at the face-to-face encounters with Jesus. Uh, It goes back, really, we've been in there doing this for a few weeks, all the way back to the season of Epiphany. We turned a corner during the season of Lent. Now we're looking at the opponents of Jesus, and our Our journey began last week in Luke chapter 4 at the temptation of Jesus. His opponent there, we found, Pastor Micah preached last weekend, the devil himself. We talked about temptation. And today, in our text, we're going to get right to it. I mean, there are really two things here we're going to see. One, the rise, and second, the fall of Jesus. He rises in popularity. He has them in the palm of his hand. Everyone's in awe of who he is and the things that he's saying. And then the second half of this text, all that changes. He makes enemies of the people that he knew when he grew up in his own hometown. They take him to the edge of the cliff. They nearly throw him off. The rise, number one, and the fall of Jesus, number two, right here in these verses in Luke chapter four. So I hope you have a Bible, and I'd love for you to follow along with me as we read this text. Let's start first, what I'll call act one, that begins in verse 14. Starts like this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So if you remember last week, we were with Jesus in the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now he enters Galilee, which is sort of like a county in the northern region of Israel. Among these places where Jesus is, Capernaum that we're going to hear about in a few moments, and Nazareth, his hometown. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, these words that follow are quite dramatic. It's easy to just rush right through them. I want you to picture these things in your mind that Luke is describing for us here. Luke, we know, talked to eyewitnesses who were there when these things happened to write down an orderly account. The opening verses of Luke chapter one tell us of what took place. Picture this in your eye. Jesus stands up to read, much like we do here. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's reading right from the words of Isaiah chapter 61. We heard Pastor Micah read those a few moments ago. I can only imagine as he's using the word me, he knows that me means him. These words are about me. And then this happens in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. We stand up to teach. 
They sat down, the rabbis would, in a chair to teach. Uh, The early uh, practice in the synagogue was that they would have a series of readings that they would rotate throughout a number of years, much like we do in a modern church today. And the uh, message would follow right after the reading. And often at that time, the uh, message or the sermon was a series really of quotations that other rabbis had written down and said about the text that was just read. The uh, people around Jesus often are in awe of him him because he teaches as one who has authority, not as the teachers and scribes said, because Jesus has a new word to bring about them. He's a very different, dramatic turn in practice in the synagogue life through the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. Verse 20, second half, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You could hear a pin drop. He's seated, remember that? And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Act one ends here. Why were they in awe? I mean, certainly, they're surprised because they knew who he was. They knew his family. Isn't this Joseph's son? Tradition tells us that uh, by this point, other biblical sources record that Joseph has probably died by the time Jesus' public ministry begins when Jesus is an adult. Is this not Joseph's son? This would have been like one of the kids who just came forward from the kids' message, uh, who grew up, moved away, went to college, and came back to his own hometown. We know his family. We know who this guy is. This is Joseph's son. Isn't that who this is? How could he be claiming to be the Lord's anointed? Which is really also the second reason why they're in awe. Because if these claims are true, if Jesus is who he's claiming to be, the Lord's anointed. The Hebrew word for that is Messiah. The Greek word for that is the Christ. If Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord's anointed, and that's good news. That that means he's arrived to do good things. The things in this list right here. uh, To end their oppression at the hands of the Romans and to heal their diseases to make their dreams come true, the things they've been praying for. He's been on their list for generation and generation and generation over hundreds and thousands of years. This is the one they've been longing for, and he has arrived to do good things. Isn't that the kind of God that we want to? Who answers our prayer? doesn't just hear and ignore who hears and responds to the things that are on our list who ends war overseas and brings peace who puts an end to pandemics and heals our diseases who frees us and brings liberty from our bondage to temptation and sin 
Isn't this the kind of God that we long for too? A couple of years ago, a Christian sociologist by the name of Christian Smith at the University of Notre Dame did a survey among thousands of youth in our culture. This is about 15 years old. Many of these uh, youth in our culture in America have grown up, and since then, this Christian Smith has coined a phrase that describes sort of the default approach to God in American culture today. These three big words with a lot of syllables, let me teach you maybe a new phrase. Maybe you've heard this before. We talk about this around here from time to time. These three words are moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's fun to say three times fast. You know, moralistic. Essentially, these three tenets, one for each of these words on the screen behind me. Number one, that God wants me to be good. Moral. That first word in the title He wants me to be good, and he blesses me if I am good. And really, uh, this goes on to say, the prevailing view in our culture today is that if I am good, God doesn't just bless me in this life today, but God will bless me eternally, and good people go to heaven when they die. Number one, moral. God wants me to be good. Number two, God wants me to be happy. In fact, that's the central goal of life, to have a good life that's comfortable, It's full of blessing. That's why I think that we as American Christians, whether we believe in this a lot or a little, that we in America today, even as Christians, have so little tolerance for our own suffering. That our resources, when our life hits the rocks, are so thin. I mean, I want a comfortable life. I want that for my kids. But by and large, the central goal of life is happiness. Number two, and then finally number three, that deism is a view of God that says he's largely distant until I need him to solve a problem. I grew up in Southern California. This is kind of like treating God like a, like a lifeguard who you don't really need. He's in the stand keeping eye over everything from afar until you need him to rescue you. Sometimes we treat God like our lifeguard. All right, why are we talking about moralistic therapeutic deism when Jesus is in the synagogue? For this reason, that for most of us, most of the time, our approach to God in our prayer is not to spend time with God, but to get things from God. Not to spend time with him and talk through our day and simply enjoy his presence like we would talk to our best friend and spend time with him. No, largely for most of us, most of the time, our approach to God in prayer is to get things from God. Here's how you know this is true of you. A, because you're human. And number two, letter B, if you were to step back and try to recall everything that you've been praying for over the last 30 days. And if you were to make a list of the people in your life and their needs, the people who maybe you've never even met, you're praying for in general, for peace in the world, if you were to make a list of the things that you've been praying for in your own life, your own needs and longings, and you were to take a look at that list 
whether you've been praying on purpose, writing those things down or not, but if you could somehow recall that, what would your list say about what's important to you? Based on the kinds of things that you've been praying for. Perhaps your own goodness, number one. Likely your own happiness, number two. And the comfort and the happiness of the people you care about. And largely, number three, you're praying to him in the first place because you need his intervention and his rescue. For most of us, most of the time, the way that we pray is not simply to spend time with God, but to get things from God. Maybe we're more like the crowd in Luke chapter 4 than we might like to admit. Because when we treat God like that, we're turning him into the spiritual equivalent of a vending machine. You know, a vending machine you put in your four quarters, you type in the numbers, A, four, and you wait for your candy to, to fall down uh, and hope that it does, because it doesn't always. Uh, if this were me, uh, I'd be looking for the item in the, let's see, that's the fourth row, the third one from the left, the orange Reese's peanut butter cups. That's my go-to in this vending machine behind me. Uh, in, when I was in high school, uh, we had one vending machine that didn't work very often, and often it would be the case that, like, you know, you put in the numbers after you put in the quarters, and it'd get stuck, and uh, you try to shake the machine, and maybe that would, wouldn't work, so you'd have to go to the office and tell them, hey, my quarter got stuck, my candy got stuck, and they'd give you the, kind of reimburse you. It was good to be the person behind that person in line, because then you'd press the same numbers, and then you'd get their item, and plus your own. It's like, bonus. Sometimes we pray like that. Put, punch in our request and wait for it to drop from heaven and hope that it does. When we get what we want, that's great. We don't get what we want. For most of us, most of the time, the way in which we pray is not to spend time with God, but to get things from God. And that kind of God is no God at all. He's no king. He's a servant at your beck and call. A lifeguard, a vending machine, a servant to meet your desires and your whims, to make you happy, to get you out of trouble. And so this is what we find here in Act 1 of Luke chapter 4, the reading that we have. I would argue that we're way more like this crowd here than we might like to admit. Act 1, Jesus has them in the palm of his hand and then turns the tables on them. Let's keep reading Act 2 that continues in verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, 
What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Let's pause there. Uh, If you remember the opening verses, 14 and 15, Jesus has been on this sort of inaugural tour in his teaching and uh, doing miracles. Uh, This thing, physician, heal yourself, this proverb seems perhaps foreign or new to us, probably likely well known to them, uh, perhaps by saying heal yourself. It's a way of saying uh, heal you, your family, and your hometown. Uh, Why wouldn't you have raised Joseph from the dead if you had the chance and the ability to do that? Do for us like you've been doing in all these other places. Jesus will go on here to tell the story of Two Old Testament prophets would have been well known to his hearers, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, in the time of a famine that went on years, doesn't help the people of Israel. He goes north above Israel to what we would call Lebanon today, this region of Sidon, next to the city of Tyre. Zarephath is the town there and helps a woman who's also a widow. She's an outsider because of her uh, uh, gender, because of her social status, and because of her nationality. Then he talks about Elisha. There are a lot of lepers, and leper was a term used throughout the scriptures to describe a number of physical illnesses, skin diseases, leprosy among them, and, and says, well, Elisha, he didn't heal people in Israel who had leprosy. He healed this person from Syria, Naaman, who was a general of one of their enemies. Jesus says about those guys, about that, I've got bad news because I'm the very same way. I'm here, but I'm not here for you. I'm not here for the things on your list today. And I'm not here at your beck and call. I'm here. I'm the Lord's anointed one, but I'm not here for you. Let's keep reading. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Jesus climbs the hill with a crowd outside the city. Here's a picture of the hill next to the town of Nazareth. You can see for scale how big that guy is right there. Here's another picture with a uh, sense of the drop, 1,200 feet, a quarter of a mile. Jesus is on the hill outside the city with the crowd. And verse 30 is the way that this ends, sort of abruptly. Uh, But passing through their midst, he went away. And that's it. That's the end of the story. The true story. We don't really know how this took place. I, you know, can you picture this in your mind? I mean, did Jesus do a Jedi mind trick? You know, I'm not the prophet you're looking for. I, in my mind, I like to picture Jesus calling like, like a Zach Morris timeout in freezing time and then like walking through their midst. I mean, how did Jesus get out of the crowd that day? For that matter, why did he wait that long? After all, if he knew he was going to escape at the top of the hill, couldn't he have escaped at the bottom? Why not slide out the side door at the synagogue? Why wait this long? Is he just being dramatic? Is he trying to prove a point? 
Here's what I do know. I don't know how. I'm not sure why. But I do know when. Because this won't be the last time that Jesus is on a hill outside the city with a crowd. Then on another hill to come, outside another city, the Lord's anointed, the favored one, the king of creation, would step down from his throne, would become poor, and allow himself to be held captive, to be oppressed and beaten and crucified and killed. The one who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And on the cross to give my life as a ransom for many. The one who took on the very nature of a servant, who made himself nothing. What did he get from the Father out of that? As he's crying and his prayers go unheard and unanswered from the cross, what did Jesus get? He got nothing. He got nothing but you. So that you might be favored in his eyes. So that you might be precious in his sight so that you might be his own and belong to him and live under him in his kingdom. Despite all the things on your list of things that you've done throughout your life so that you simply might be his. Let me ask you a question as we close. Can you love a God like that? Can you love a God because he's God? Can you love a God not because he gives you good things, the things that you're waiting to receive on your list, but can you love a God because he's God, because he's, simply because he's good? Job, remember him? First chapter, he's lost everything. His life has hit the rocks. He's lost his health. He's got diseases. He's lost his wealth. His riches wiped away. He's lost his own family. His kids are killed in a tragic accident. And he looks up to heaven and he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Can you love God like that? Without a list, without conditions. Because my friend, that's the way God loves you. Without a list and without condition. He doesn't give you a list of things that you ought to do. 
before he'll begin to love you and bless you. He doesn't care about the things that are on your list that you've done, and he doesn't need the list of things that you think you need to do, the kind of person that you want to become. He loves you because you're you. And he loves the you that you are. This is the God that you get and the God that you need and this is the God that you have. Does he want you to be good? Yeah. Does he want you to be happy? Sure. Is he distant? No. This is God in human flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, who's crucified and risen for you and for me. Amen.